Welcome to Empowered Mind Body Inspiration. The mind is the map to wholeness, wellness, health. The heart is the key to genius and inspiration. Join me and my guests as we explore how to release and rewire into who you truly are unique, whole, and empowered. Please like, share, and subscribe. Spiral up, spiral out. Welcome, everyone. Today we have Dr. Jonathan Beattie, MD, a graduate of the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. He's been practicing as an ND for 13 years, and he is an avid outdoorsman who thrives in nature and has recently bought a farm and is about to begin the journey of farming and homesteading as a family. Today, we're going to discuss the concept of virtuosity, which is becoming excellent at the mundane so interesting and so relevant. He also believes that we often ignore the fundamental cause of disease and grasp at modern medicine to fix us. Jonathan has much to share through his own personal journey and countless hours as an ND. Let's see how this spirals out. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. So good to have you here. So let's start right with the juicy stuff. <clears throat> How did you become a naturopathic doctor or what was your passion to become one? Um, so I came a little bit of an atypical path for most uh, NDs in that, um, like many, I came from the University of Guelph, but like most bio kids at the University of Guelph, uh, I started off on a path to become a veterinarian. And part of the prerequisite courses was nutrition and uh, I, I, so I started studying nutrition because this was the first time in my life anyone had really explained to me that food actually had an impact on my health. And I grew up like I was the sickly kid. I was the kid who was in sick kids a couple of times as a very young child. And I had, you know, bad asthma, bad eczema my whole life. And, you know, I saw every specialist. I had a respirologist. I had multiple dermatologists. I had every cream, lotion, potion, puffer, pill you could imagine to manage my symptoms. And then I was away at school and they told me about, I started studying nutrition. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, what I eat impacts my health. That's what this nutrition thing is about. So I changed uh, courses at school and I, uh, I switched from animal biology over, well, I went through a couple of different majors, but I eventually landed on nutrition and nutraceutical science. And with studying that, I then decided I wanted to be a doctor that treated people with nutrition. And I started looking around all the different medical programs. I wrote my MCATs. I, you know, I, I applied and was accepted at Columbia in, in New York, um, way out of my price range. And uh, I started looking around at a whole variety of different programs. But what really caught me was I'd heard about this naturopathic uh, college through a girl I had a crush on actually in university. And so I started looking more into it. And what I discovered was that they actually did six hours of nutrition a week for all four years of school and that you are actually a real doctor that's allowed to practice medicine in Ontario. And I kind of took a leap of faith and went that way. Because at the time, the next closest uh, nutrition in medicine program was McMaster, which at the time had six hours total for nutrition in all four years of med school. And that kind of blew my mind because I was like, well, wait, 
but and, and bear with me because I, I like to get technical on this one because this one is it really sort of just shows the whole disconnect. But the definition of a nutrient is the basic molecules required to support and sustain life in the absence of disease. So therefore, any nutrient deficit automatically creates a disease state in the body. Yet doctors are only studying six hours of nutrition. And if we can just fix some of these underlying deficits, we can make people better. And so that's kind of why I decided to become a naturopath. And it really came down to just me on my journey, messing around with my diet, just basically playing with, like, I was the guinea pig, you know, scientific study, N of one, which is, you know, I was the only person. And, uh, and in doing that, that's how I kind of, you know, became, decided to become a naturopath. Um, because I noticed that my asthma and my eczema got better when I changed how I ate. And so that really just pushed me to want to do that for other people who were kind of stuck in the conventional medicine model that managed disease, but nobody ever asked me, you know, at all, or even suggested why I got sick. They just knew ways to control the illness or control the symptoms of the illness. So that's kind of how I ended up in naturopath. Right. And isn't it crazy how we grow up not even realizing the connection? And then when it dawns on you how powerful it is. Well, it's one of those things to me that even like, you know, within school, there's some of the basic things that we just don't teach children. Like for the amount of learning that goes on in the public school system, which, you know, I'm a graduate of. Um, and I'm old enough that I had five years of high school. I did the OAC. Um, and you know, in all that time, I didn't learn some of the like basics of finance, which is a big one for me and how, you know, they, they kind of explain a little bit how interest works, but really money management isn't something taught in school, basic nutrition, basic, like how to keep yourself alive and healthy, you know, how, where food comes from all these kind of like basic human needs, basic skills that are required to sustain a human in this world. And that's not at all what we're taught. And instead, you know, we're, we're forced to regurgitate a lot of these facts that don't have a lot of practical application. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm a little bit critical if you can't tell about our educational system, but for the failures it has in the sense that, you know, I, I was in my twenties before I had to start playing around with my diet to fix myself and none of my doctors did it, you know, with all the specialists and different people, I never once stumbled across at least one doctor that was like, Hmm, I wonder what could be causing all of your issues. Right. I was told repeatedly, no, my bad acne that I had as a teenager is nothing to do with diet. Spoiler alert. It had everything to do with diet, Uh, (laughs) you know, so. Yeah. And let alone how the mind is connected to our health as well. None of that is looked at. So you have a real passion for finding the cause rather than covering it up, which our society also tends to find a pill to, or, you know, a medicine to cover up the symptoms. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it was, I, I worked at a Dairy Queen all through high school um, and, you know, no disrespect to the old DQ, uh, but I'm horribly allergic to cow's milk. And so uh, my eczema was so bad when I was uh, 17, they thought I had flesh eating disease on my ankles. 
Um, and I got to see uh, like my dermatologist sent me to their mentor who sent me to their mentor um, before they finally figured out it was just like bad eczema with a secondary fungal infection. But it was so gross that they thought I had flesh eating disease. And but again, nobody looked at the cause. And so then I finally figured out that all of my conditions were just like there was no medicine I needed to add. It was literally just stop eating this food and all your problems will go away. And it could be that simple. Um, you know, that's remarkable to me that that wasn't covered. And so it's treating the cause. I'm now what, well, it's now defunct, but um, I guess now we call them members of the associate members of the Academy of Pediatric Special Needs, um, which we used to be called Dan Doctors, which was Defeat Autism Now. So I took off to Chicago after I graduated um, to get certified as a Dan doctor or a Dan practitioner. Um, because in my practice, I had a young boy come in, parents brought him in for bowel issues. He he just had terrible digestive problems. They weren't really concerned with me treating his autism, but he was nonverbal, very low functioning autism spectrum, but with a lot of intestinal issues and in treating him again, I was immature at the time, didn't really know what I was doing, but we just ran some basic food allergy or food sensitivity testing with him. And it came back, hey, you're sensitive to these foods. So we took him off those foods. Six weeks later, he walked into my office and said, hey, Dr. Beatty. And I paused and I looked at my file and I was like, wait, this kid's nonverbal. Yet he just said hello. And then mom came around the corner with tears in her eyes because I'd given her back her child. And I just had this like huge epiphany that, you know, here this child's autism presentation and what, what I now describe as the symptoms known as autism. Um, and he just had a, a food sensitivity that was being mislabeled. It was creating brain inflammation, which was creating the symptoms of autism. And it was that easy. And, I, you know, if I had a commercial, I would say results not typical. <laughs> Very rarely do you do something so minor and get such a dramatic change. But at the end of the day, the fact that I could do something that minor and get such a dramatic change completely reshape my practice. And that's what I focus on now is trying to get to that deeper cause, because when you can deliver people like true healing or, you know, I I don't like the word cure, but almost a cure, um, you know, that to me is just the most rewarding thing. Like I always tell my patients, my goal is I don't want to see you anymore. And they always kind of look at me. I'm like, if you keep coming back, I'm not doing my job right? Like my goal is to teach you the skills, identify the cause and teach you the skills to manage it so that you don't need me or any other doctor, which is pretty much the opposite of the medical model that we live in, right? Which is, you know, come back every three months for your prescription renewal. Yeah. Yeah. And to teach people to be more responsible for their own health, right? Like once you have the skills. Well, and and that's a passionate one for me because I feel like we've been trained by society um, that, you know, you just, you hand over the reins to your, your life and the control over your health to somebody else. And you, I guess, are supposed to rely entirely on them as it would stand, I guess, that it's like, Oh no, my health is not my responsibility. That's what I have a doctor for. Right. That's why I pay tax in Canada. That's why I pay taxes elsewhere. That's what people pay a doctor for is like, well, you no no, no, you take care of my health give me the magic pill that cures me or makes, and ultimately doesn't cure you hardly ever, 
what I always say is it makes you more comfortable in your disease. Like you come in and it just makes you complain less about being sick, right? Does it make you better? No. Why? How do you know that? Well, if you stop the pill, do your symptoms come back? Yeah. So you, you fix nothing, right? You're just managing a disease state and you're just controlling the symptoms to make you more comfortable. And, and, you know, and it's funny because as a naturopath, I'm not even, I describe myself as not, I'm not anti-pharmaceutical. Many people think because of the way I speak that I am. I was like, no, it's just, you have to use a pharmaceutical or even a herb or a nutrient appropriately to address the cause. And if you're not, to me, if you're not addressing the cause, you're not doing medicine is, is really my approach. Regardless, if you call yourself a naturopath, a medical doctor, or a chiropractor, whatever you describe yourself as in, in the health realm, to me, you're not really a doctor. You're not really helping people unless you're getting at the cause because otherwise you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're almost like tricking people into thinking you're helping. Yes, exactly. And, you know, health is the most important thing. So if we don't start with responsibility there, how do we create our own life, you know? Well, that's it. And I mean, how you, well, we, I mean, I'm 40. So most people kind of joke that I'm going through my midlife crisis right now. Um, but like, we're in the process of selling our house and we just bought a farm um, a little bit east of where I live in Whitby right now. And, um, and the goal of that is to exactly, you know, live, live the healthy way and get back to our roots and basically grow a lot of our own food, raise a lot of our own animals and really be in touch and connected to the, the food we eat and the things that make us healthy. And ultimately, but it's, it's connected because it's not just about eating healthy food. It's about the activities that the human body goes through in the production of that food that also keeps us healthy, like the movement, the fresh air, the sun, the I, I'm spacing on the name right now. I used to know it off the top of my head. There's a, a Japanese word. They call it tree bathing. And it's for being out in nature. And in Japan, in Tokyo, you can actually be prescribed tree bathing as a remedy for stress, where they basically your doctor prescribes you to go sit in a park for 20 minutes every day to manage your stress. Because they found, you know, again, lots of studies to show reduction in stress hormones, all these factors. But to me, that's what health is, is that, you know, you're, it, it's more than just buying an organic apple. It's the process of raising the apple tree, touching the apple tree, you know, smelling it, being around it, having to dig the hole, the physical activity of digging the hole to plant it in, right? You know, all those pieces that make that apple that you're going to eat that much healthier because it requires you to do all these other things that ultimately also benefit your body. Right. Like this connection to the earth and the exercise and that, like the connection to the tree and the gratitude for it and giving you an apple, you know, to have all of that. You're walking your talk. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, and it's to me, it's this, it's the same idea. Like I'm a, people ask me, I, I get described as like a paleo type person. And I say, well, no, it's more ancestral. And really what it comes down to is, you know, we, we have this weird idea that we can somehow out science or out technology nature, um, much 
in, in direct contrast to the fact that almost every time we've ever tried this, we failed miserably because nature just adapts to it. Like, you know, hey, let's, well, why don't we all just take an, uh, prophylactic antibiotics and then we'll never get sick? Well, spoiler alert, because the bacteria will quickly develop resistance to the antibiotic, making it instantly useless. And now you'll get this bacterial infection that we can no longer treat. So like that whole idea, and, and it doesn't mean I'm not, I'm not saying I'm anti-antibiotic, but it's just, again, that idea that we can't use a technology to defeat it. We have to kind of learn how to live as part of an ecosystem. And the further we try to remove ourselves from an ecosystem, the sicker we get. I mean, I've read a couple of studies and I don't know how they get to these um, endpoints, but, you know, children today are the first generation that are expected to live, have a shorter life expectancy than their parents, right? Like if technology is that fantastic, why is it that they expect a child today not to live as long? Yeah. Do you have, and, that's, and I'm a father, that's a scary thing to me. It is. Right. And, and so many factors are probably involved. Yeah. Care to elaborate? And to me, it's that, <laughs> well, yeah, it's that, that lack of ancestral connection, right? Like we're just not connected to our environment. We're not connected to the things that make us healthy. I mean, people, um, you know, they love to make fun, fun of the Amish um, who probably aren't listening to this podcast because, you know, technology um, but at the same time, you start looking at their populations and population demographics. It's like their cancer rates are extraordinarily low compared to city dwellers. Their autism rates are extraordinarily low, if at all, compared to city dwellers, right? There's like a whole like bunch of diseases and conditions that they don't even deal with. Yeah. Like at all, atopic disease and allergies are, are extraordinarily lower in those populations. And, you know, and for the lack of all these scientific and medical advances. And, you know, like I've, I've seen studies and it's, I always use this with patients when they ask me questions. And, you know, the, uh, the average life expectancy in the United States is 76. I wish we had better Canadian statistics, but we don't. So I, I have to use American ones. So the average life expectancy in the United States is 76. The best number I've ever seen for the average life expectancy of a physician in the U.S., and the best one is 70. I've oh, seen wow. studies that showed as low as 54. But I'll give you 70 because that's still six years shorter than the average person. Like that just shows you right away the disconnect between our medicine and doctors use medicine more than the average person especially in a, a system like the U.S. where it's privatized medicine and many people can't afford it. Doctors use medicine more. We should technically have the knowledge um, base to identify problems in our health, right? And they, they seek out, um, uh, they, they seek medical care more for in, um, minor ailments than an average American does. They receive more medical care than an average American does. They can afford uh, more medical care than an average American can, and they have more medical knowledge than an average American, yet they can't outlive them. And by like a, a dramatic amount, like six years isn't chump change, right? Like that's a long time. And so you start to sit there and go, and you're going to put all your faith in your health and life into somebody that can't keep themselves alive. Yeah. And this is part of like our family move to a farm is the intention of like, I want to die skydiving on my hundredth birthday when my chute doesn't open kind of thing. 
but have them. Well, not, I don't actually want to die that way, but you know, like (laughs) I just want to have the mental and physical capacity at a hundred that that's a reasonable option to me. Yeah. And to still be seeking that joy. Yeah. But you've realized that it has that health when, when we're truly healthy, there also has to be a connection to the earth and to, you know, where we come from and what we're a part of, which so many have forgotten. Oh, absolutely. And we're just, uh, we're, we're part of an ecosystem. And that I think is what we, we always forget. And the more we try to disconnect ourselves from it, um, the further away from health we get. And, you know, I'm, I've become a, a crazy rabid environmentalist in my, you know, over the years. And like, I live in the suburbs and I've got about a quarter, I mean, we have a fairly large suburban lot, we have about a quarter acre and I've slowly started converting even now all of it over into like farmland and agricultural land. And I grow a lot of my own vegetables and a lot of my own herbs. And, you know, we, we wild craft in our local park. Like I'm the weird guy that wanders out of the bush with his kids but we've all got purple stained mouths because we've been in the, in the woods eating berries. And, you know, I can tell you where every mulberry tree in my neighborhood is. And we found the wild patches of lemon balm for, for making tea and all that kind of stuff. And, and my kids know it too, which to me is like the greatest thing to watch is that when we go on walks in the summer, they pick where we walk the dog based on what food they want to eat on our walk. Right. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> like, you know, two and a four-year-old, and they're like, no, I want to go north because there's like yeah. there's more raspberries north than there are south on this path. So let's go north and let's go, you know, like let's go suffer through the mosquitoes of the north pathway because the benefit is we get eaten alive by mosquitoes, but there's a lot of raspberries. Right. <laughs> Versus going south and the mulberries are drying up and there's not as many of them now, and they're they're getting out of reach and you know so although there's fewer mosquitoes that way the fruit bounty is lower so we don't go that direction yeah it's wonderful you know i moved to a horse farm seven years ago and i grew up on a farm but when we moved back to a farm and it involved horses and which take a lot of care and the land took a lot of care i it and after becoming a naturopathic doctor i realized just how important or how, almost how ridiculous it is that society has taught us to sit on our butt for so many hours a day that we have to go work out at a gym, you know? And when I started to, you know, muck stalls and look after the land and look after horses, I, I didn't need to go to a gym. There was no need for that. So it became part of who I was, you know, and it just made me reflect on the, the craziness of what we've done to our psyche and our thoughts and our, what we think we need, you know, anyway. Oh, totally. We, we put it, we like, we, we, we created our world like a gerbil cage and we put a little, or like a hamster cage. We put a little wheel in it or like a treadmill that we run on. And, you know, now we can video, video somebody, a trainer into our house to like, show us how to like work out and move our bodies in ways that we're likely never going to move our bodies outside of that brief moment of being in that exercise. Like I joke with patients all the time about doing bicep curls, that they're a waste of time. 
And like, they're, they're only good for posing in the gym. Um, because like the number of times you actually just stand and do a frozen bicep curl. No, you do a one-legged twisting squat as you try to put groceries or a kid into the backseat of a car, you know, but rarely do you just stand completely static and just do bicep curls with your groceries. Um, You know, that's not something that humans do where, you know, we generally don't move like that. We generally don't lift heavy objects like that very statically. And so why do we practice that? And so this is even with like, with movement, patients always say, I go, do you exercise? They go, no, I don't like gyms. And I'm like, well, I didn't ask you if you like to gym. I said, do you exercise? Like, I don't care if you ever go to a gym, you need to move your body. And the one I always have is uh, one of my favorite lines back to patients, actually, when they, you know, I say, oh, you need to exercise. I don't have time. I said, oh, what's, what's a bigger priority than staying alive? Like, like what is bigger than your health? Like, what are you doing that, like, that puts yourself that you are now second. And they just kind of look at me like, uh, like, yeah. Cause like, if you don't do these things, like, I don't care all the money in the world isn't going to buy your way out. Right. Steve jobs, one of the richest guys on earth, pancreatic cancer, like all the money in the world can't buy a cure. And, you know, even with all of that, rest in peace. Right. And so that to me is like one of the examples I'll, I'll explain to patients that, you know, any, any, I mean, my understanding is he lived relatively well and sometimes you just can't control for those things, but then that's ultimately brings up the, like in our house, we have a phrase, we call it choose your hard, which is like life is hard no matter which way it goes. But our, my approach is choose it, choose like make at, at least if it's going to be hard do make it something you enjoy. As opposed to what's that old song? Everybody's working for the weekend. Um, I'm not a very musical guy. Can you tell? But so many people, that's what they do. They, they work for the weekend and then they, you know, but then on the weekend, well, Saturday and Sunday, what'd you do? Well, groceries, I had to do this. 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 What'd you do for yourself? Well, nothing. It's like, okay, so you're working for the weekend so you can, and, and we just need to create that balance. Um, and the only reason we, we can't have more balance is, is a lot of it is mental limitation that we, we, we put these men, we put ourselves in these prisons that we limit ourselves as to our potential. And I think most people are scared of it. And, and I know I was too, like I held myself back from a lot of, uh, things and probably from some earlier successes because of a, a fear of success. And a lot of the times, your one success makes other people uncomfortable. And part of the reason is because they know that they're holding themselves back too. And so it's easier for them to try and hold you back than it is to address their own underlying emotional issues around why they are afraid to move forward. Yeah. And Interesting. Yeah, we, we have a lot of limiting beliefs. Yeah, a lot of things that our our mind or ego gets in the way and stops us from achieving our true passions. I I love how you talk about virtuosity as well in creating excellence in the mundane, right? That's like, that is way cool. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so, so that's that's one of my other, uh, like, I guess it's a it's a practice approach. It's a life approach. 
Uh, I mean, I, I kind of stole it from my CrossFit gym that I was a member of um, for a while. Shout out to CrossFit Oshawa. They had some great coaches, but um, it was a word I learned from one of my coaches at CrossFit. And, um, and it was about getting excellent at the mundane and it's learning a basic skill very, very well. And this is where we get the term like in music virtuoso, which again is it's basically if like you can play scales really beautifully, then you can play music really beautifully. And that often gets overlooked by people where, you know, if you like, once you have a very simple skill done very, very well, it's very easy to expand on something. And so that's the whole sort of goal of virtuosity. Like I get patients in my office all the time and, you know, especially with more, I do a lot of autoimmune work. I do a lot of work with children on the spectrum and, you know, parents come in and they've, they've done all this research and read all these books and they want to do heavy metal testing and they want to do parasite testing and they want to do DNA analysis and they want to do, you know, urine organic acid tests and all these things. And right away I'm like, well, how do you eat? And they're like, what? It's like, well, how do you move? How do you sleep? How do you hydrate? And they kind of look at me and I'm like, well, until you get those things, like why overcomplicate your world? Yeah, we can, we can spend all your money doing all these fancy tests and we can buy all these expensive supplements and we can do all of this stuff. But if you don't have the basics down, like it, it, there's no point in any of it, right? Like you can go and buy like if you're just learning how to ride a bicycle, there's, you know, there's probably no point in going out and buying like a really nice $5,000 road bike because you're not going to appreciate the difference between that and the, you know, $200 hardware store special, you know, it's one's going to be a little lighter. Yeah. You'll probably go a little faster to the gates, but you're not going to like, you, you don't really need it to learn how to ride a bike. Right. And so that's with people I try to explain to them, you know, Get your basics in order because many times medicine is just that. It's like you don't have the basic tools that are really going to help you in check. And once you get that done, then, you know, then we can get more complicated. Like I spoke with a patient earlier this morning and uh, their their uh, older son is on the spectrum and he's doing like he was barely verbal when I saw him. And today we had a conference like when I first started seeing him a few years ago, today we had a conversation, which was nice. Like he's, and I got to give kudos to this family. They've worked their butts off and seen the results. And actually probably the big, the best part is one of the biggest changes is not something I prescribed. It's something they self-prescribed, which I thought was amazing. They, they, they found a zeolite um, uh, drink that they give the kid and he just lit up after that. And um but, uh, but the parents decided they were, you know, they're like, Hey, you know, now that we've seen you for both their kids for a while, they, they want to come and see me as well for themselves. And I just kind of asked them, I was like, well, do you guys still eat gluten? And their their son's very sensitive. And they said, well, yeah. So do you still eat dairy? And their son's very sensitive. They said, yeah. I said, well, how about this? Stop doing those two things for like six weeks and then give me a call. And they kind of looked at me like, wait, you don't want to. I'm like, no, I don't want to see you until, again, virtuosity, <laughs> until you've done the basics, which we've talked about for your kids. And like, and I know, and you do it for your kids. So I know you know how to do it. So until you do those things, I was like, just do those first, then we'll book you in because then I don't have to, like the first time I see you, I'm just going to tell you that anyway. So just go, go through some of the basic stuff that you already know, do apply that to yourselves. 
and then we'll get you in the office and then we can like, you know, maybe overcomplicate your, your medical approach a little bit. Right. Love it. So, and how have you used that in your own life? Like I, um, I, I love those stories because, you know, we all want to think that, you know, movie stars live a certain way, the rich and famous live a certain way, or if we buy this, we'll get there fast. But really, it's about enjoying the mundane, like the little things and becoming perfect at them. Yeah. So, I mean, in a, well, a bunch of different ways, like from an exercise perspective, it was like, you know, instead of trying to do all these complicated exercises, it was, um, you know, I had, when I started doing CrossFit a few years ago, I had just terrible form at everything I did. And it was a giant ego hit, um, to start learning how to do a squat with an empty bar where I would always pride myself on how, you know, how heavy can you squat and all this nonsense. But my, my form was terrible. My flexibility was terrible. And so I just, you know, cut out all weight and spent months, I mean, months and months and months on just an empty bar and just to get that flexibility and to start to learn how to undo all the patterns that I had. Um, and then the same thing, I, I grew up kind of like, I always had gardens in my uh, growing up. Like I didn't realize houses didn't come with composters because we just always composted in my family because my dad grew up on a farm. And same thing. It was just, I, I was trying to get into, you know, more fancy um, gardens with, you know, cooler plants and more variety and all these things. And then I started noticing some of my basic stuff was suffering. And that was it. Like all of a sudden I just cut back the number of things I grew and started just becoming more intentional about growing a few things and learning how to grow a few things well, as opposed to half failing at a lot. And so it just was like that kind of like ego kick of, you know, it's okay if you don't do everything, just kind of get good at what you can. And so I've just kind of learned that. And even cooking, I mean, I've growing up, we had a rule in our house. My poor parents were great. They suffered through a lot of bad meals as parents do. But one night a week, I think from probably the time I was six years old, uh, we had to cook a meal. And that was something that was just a rule in our house. And my, my parents would help us with it, you know, if we had to use the, the stove or the oven, et cetera. But it was what we wanted. So, you know, a lot of the times, because if we were feeling lazy, we'd do like soup and sandwiches for dinner. Um, but we had to make it all or, you know, tuna melts or something like that, something quick and easy. Um, but that then taught me how to cook. And then in later years now, um, I'm, I'm tr trying to get back to sort of like, again, learning the basics. So instead of making, say, the fanciest dish in the world, it's like, how do you make like one dish perfectly? And so like, like I'm now known by my mother-in-law and my, my, my in-laws for my Caesar salad, where like, you know, it's to them, it's like one of the best Caesar salads they've ever had. And it's just like, again, taking the time to perfect the simple salad dressing recipe and how to put together like just a basic salad, um, but, you know, do everything from scratch and how to do that part of a meal perfectly. And, and then just, and just make sure, you know, every time I made it, I would tweak a little bit more of this, a little bit less of this and adjust it until it got like perfect as far as I'm concerned. 
uh, at least the way I like it. And then that's the approach. So it's like not overcomplicating making, you know, a 10 course meal, but just making, you know, the two courses as, as good as they can be. Right. And it almost takes it right back to what we were first talking about being responsibility for your own health. So even if you know the first things to do and start to do them well, then you'll compound and learn from that and grow from that. So, so important in every facet. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing I like with it is, is the, um, and this is like the parenting side is um, slow food where my wife has gotten into sourdough lately. Um, well, glu- gluten-free of course in our house, cause none of us can tolerate gluten. Um, but she's made a gluten-free sourdough. And now my kids know that, you know, if like Friday morning, if they're making pizza dough with mummy, we're not eating it till Saturday night. And they know that's like, oh, yay, we get to make pizza dough so we can have pizza tomorrow. And they really understand that like delayed gratification, but also where food comes from. So they're like, I want this. Like, we don't have that. Oh, okay. And they just accept that, you know, or, or sometimes they'll ask for things like, well, that's not in season right now. So that's not an option. Oh, when can we have it? July. Well, what month is it now? It's December. So how many is that? <laughs> you know, it's like eight more months until we're having cherries again. That's just like, that's just the nature of where we live. You know, we live in Canada, you get cherries for maybe two, three months tops, and then you'd never see them again for the rest of the year. Yeah. Right. And so to eat food seasonally. John, Tell us about the whole gluten sensitivity. So many people probably are sensitive and it's possible that we're more sensitive than ever for many reasons. What What are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, yeah, uh, I see it in a huge way. Like these, when it comes to celiacs, I think in Canada, they estimate about 4% of the entire population of Canada are celiac, like not just gluten sensitive, mm. but full-blown celiac disease which is like one in every 25 people. Like that's a lot of folks. And then uh, from that, we also see there's like the gluten sensitive non-celiac, which is people assume just because they're not celiac that it's fine. You know, like they're not, you're not to the point that, you know, a single piece of bread is going to cause your intestines to fall apart. That doesn't necessarily mean something's good for you. And I, I suspect that it's likely related to glyphosate and the high amount of spray we use because glyphosate's mechanism of action is disrupting intestinal barriers. And this is where the majority of our immune system is, how we become sensitized to foods, and especially if you always pair the two. So, you know, we used to just spray the glyphosate on, on the crops when they were in the field. And then, of course, the rain would wash most of it away. Now they actually reapply it in many areas um, before they store the the seed or the grain. Um, So it's not getting washed away. So we're getting these like really high concentrations. I I read a study a few years ago. It was like between 2000 and now we like the year 2000. Now we apparently um, have 14 times as much glyphosate in our diet in just that 20 year period. And again, there's likely like, yeah, maybe it doesn't kill us right out of the gate. So you do sure a six week safety study on the stuff and it seems fine, but we don't look at the long-term, you know, immunoreactivity, 
how it's messing with our immune systems. Like these things don't make safety studies. Like nobody's looking at this stuff. Nobody cares um, because all that does is interfere with profits. And so we, we, do, we don't test the safety of these items. But if you think about it, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's a poison designed to kill biological organisms by making their intestines explode, basically. And then they starve to death. And that's basically what we see, the same effect in gluten-sensitive non-celiac. And I think what happens is the glyphosate exposure affects our gut, and then we get exposed to gluten at the same time. And I think in some cases, it's just the human body going, well, something we're eating right now is causing this, this insult to us. And I'm going to respond to that by producing an antibody to kill it, even if it's, and it may be the body making the mistake that, you know, hey, gluten's not actually the cause of this. But it doesn't matter because the fact is the body thinks it is and therefore creates this response. And then um, there's a great uh, doctor, Dr. Alessio Fasano, who he mapped out the sort of, uh, he's a pediatric gastroenterologist, and he mapped out the actual mechanism of leaky gut um, based on this compound called zonulin. And we know gluten does cause the body pretty much whether, whether you have an antibody response to it or not, it causes a zonulin cascade. So it creates this leaky gut, this leaky brain effect. And so I, I find a lot of people are sensitive to it and people go, oh, but, but our ancestors ate it. Well, they ate some of it, not nearly as much as we think they did. Um, and they also, I mean, our wheat that we produce now, it has much, much higher amounts of gluten in it than it used to as well, um, through just selective breeding. And so with this, like we're taking in more gluten than we ever did. We're now pairing it with pesticides. And I think that's triggering a lot of this, but ultimately it, it disrupts the immune system. I mean, the, we, like I always find it interesting um, in med school, you're taught about the immune system and, and white blood cells, not realizing that the majority of your immune system is not in the blood. It's, it's these like mucus associated lymphoid tissues that live in your gut. It's there's, there's um, immune cells that are actually integrated all through your fascia and they're, they're not mobile. They're, they're fixed as part of the fascia of the human body that connects all your bones, muscles, internal organs all together and it's just dotted with immune tissue and yet we measure people's you know immune responses and health based on this on blood because that's just easy to sample but it's you know at most 20 percent of the immune system that we're able to take a look at and then tell people how their immune system's behaving like we're missing 80 percent of it at least and that's just what we know the thing is, like when we were, when you and I were in school, we were in the same class. Um, the one thing we didn't know was, and, and the reason I know this is because this research didn't even come out till after we were out of school about immune cells being actually integrated into the fascia. Right. So, yeah. So that information didn't even exist when we were in med school. And so, you know, this is where like all, you know, doctors are trained in a lot of this information and we don't have, um, like, because we weren't, you know, trained with that information, medicine isn't designed to address it and doesn't really have a good system by which we can address that. 
Yeah, really interesting. So what do you suggest? Because most of us are probably sensitive. What are your top tips? The, the, the easiest tip for this one is as simple as just stop eating it for three months. Like, and that means 100%. You got to look at every little additive in every food, you know, before you go to down another Caesar, just check and make sure they're using a Caesar mix that doesn't contain gluten because most of them do. You know, it's, there's a lot of hidden areas for it because uh, it's cheap. Um, but what I say is try to do like three months without it and then reintroduce it. And if you are fine with reintroducing it, you're fine. And most people will find that they're not, that they do react. And people go, oh, well, it's just because I, I didn't need it. Back to my cherry analogy. We eat cherries in my house for three months. We don't generally buy a lot of them out of season. Well, right now we, with the kids, we have frozen cherries um, that we buy, like a pesticide-free frozen cherry. But for the most part, like we don't eat certain things out of season. And we don't react to them when we do eat them in season. So it's like we go, you know, 10 months of the year without eating certain foods. And then we gorge on them for two months. We never have reactions. So it's not just the absence of a food in the diet suddenly makes you, oh, I've become sensitive because I withdrew. No, it's what happened is you had sensory adaptation, which is your body just got so used to feeling sick that that was just your norm. You didn't even notice. It's like if you had a skunk that you carried around everywhere, you wouldn't even smell skunks until you took a, you know, let's say you take a four week vacation from it and you come home and like, wow, it stinks like skunk in here. And, you know, but after a couple of days, you, you wouldn't even smell it anymore because you would, you would adapt to it again. And I think that same thing happens with gluten and we just get so used to feeling sick that that's just our norm. So that's, that's my biggest one. It's just like, you don't need a fancy test. Like there's, there's no nutrient in a gluten containing grain that you can't get elsewhere. Like there's no like, oh, you'll die if you don't have gluten. No, like, sorry, I'm sorry, the Wheat Board of Canada, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> I love that, though, that we don't need a fancy test. Probably all need to cut it out for three months. Yeah. 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 Well, that's like, that's a big beef of mine is like, we, we, we want to do all these fancy tests and we don't just look at the evidence in front of our faces. You know, I get, I do a lot of the thyroid patients and I treat a lot of thyroids and I'm like, what's your body temperature? And they're like, what, what's your body temperature? I don't care what your blood work says. Where's your body temperature? Cause your thyroid is your thermostat. So if your body temperature is low or high or completely unstable, you probably have a thyroid problem. And let's just start looking. There. And you know, you're like thyroid hormones will they'll go up, down and all around, but the normal ranges keep changing too. I mean, no, that's the other thing nobody talks about is, you know, when I started in practice to now, the normal thyroid hormone range has dropped because what they found was the majority of the population was hypothyroid. So they just shifted the normal range to include them all. So now like a version, what used to be hypothyroidism a decade ago is now considered normal. So, you know, and then you get all these patients that are sick with thyroid disease coming into your office, but Oh no, your thyroid's in the normal range. So you don't have a thyroid problem. And then that's, that's a total lie. Cause 10 years ago, if you came in with those numbers and going, Oh yeah, that's clear clinical hypothyroidism. Let's treat. And, you know, I, I heard a thing the other day, I saw a thing they were trying to lobby about lowering the normal body temperature. Well, no humans didn't suddenly change. Like our normal body temperature didn't suddenly change or it's just hypothyroidism is so rampant that 
we just, that's why the normal body temperature has just gotten lower. And as part of it is your thyroid is designed to respond to changes in your environment. Well, name me how much of a day, now you live on a horse farm, so you probably have a little bit of a different answer to this, but how much of your day do you spend outside of 20 degrees Celsius? Right? Not a lot. In the summer, we put on the AC. In the winter, we turn on the heat. You know, our cars have, have heaters and they have AC in them. Like we are, we maintain ourselves in a very comfortable environment. And so our thyroid never has to adapt to, to the temperature swings around us. And so, of course, it gets lazy over time and loses its way. And so this is where sometimes we have to basically like I have a lot of my patients do cold showers, um, which I actually learned that trick from my wife uh, to, to basically repattern their thyroids. Because then the thyroid turns back on. It's like, oh, yeah, no, cold. I'm going to have to act here to compensate for that. And within a few days of doing them, people are like, oh, I can tolerate that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Is that one of the top reasons you think people have so many thyroid issues? Is there any others? Oh, well, that and other halogen uh, toxins. So like bromides, fluorides, chlorine, all that kind of stuff, which displaces iodine. Plus being in Canada, we don't have any iodine in our soil because our, our country was covered with a glacier 10,000 years ago and the seas were up. So we have naturally low iodine in our soil. We don't eat a lot of seaweed or iodine rich foods and we're like too sedentary and too comfortable. And I think that combination basically creates thyroid disease. And part of the reason I believe that is I noticed that when we correct those factors, thyroid diseases usually go away. Like, and I'm, and I even talking autoimmune. I mean, I've, I've literally seen patients with like full blown Hashimoto's antibodies over a thousand, get their antibodies into the normal range through diet and lifestyle changes, turn off their disease and come off their medication and live healthy without it. Now, does that mean it happens every time? No, because there's probably some other factors I'm missing. That's why we call it medical practice, not medical. No, it's we're, we're still learning. You know, the, the most dangerous thing in medicine is pretending you know it all. The day the day you think you know it all is the day you should retire because you're now a danger to the public. <laughs> right. And it all goes right back to look at the cause. And most things, when you look at that, can be improved greatly at the very least. And yeah. I'll, I'll adapt what you said by one thing. Look at the causes. Yeah. <laughs> there tend to be a few. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I only say that because I find that's like the one thing with patients where they come in like, I have this because of A. And it's like, well, no, you, you, it could also be because of B, C, D, E, F, G, H that you also have. Um, and those are also, pre and it might be all of them. And you have to get all of those factors of your life under control to be healthy. And that's annoying and complicated and necessary, right? And so, yeah, but uh, yeah. I know it's, it's always nice talking to like-minded people who understand that though. <laughs> Yes. So these things are so golden. Would you like to leave everyone with one more tip? One more tip. Um, drink clean water. Mm. I It's like overly simple, but I would have to say if there's one thing I run into in my practice in the majority of patients, um, regardless of where they come from, not enough people drink enough good quality water in their day to hydrate and it is the base like water is that basic fundamental unit by which your body operates and by which your body detoxifies too 
And so people like, they, again, want to do, oh, I got to do a detox. How much water do you drink? Because like you probably start with that. Right. And so that includes no chlorine, no fluoride, as little plastics as possible. What other, what other, what would you call good clean water? Yeah. Like, I mean, depending if you've got a well, that would work. I mean, we're on municipal water here. So um, I have a, we have what's called a Berkey system. Like a, it's a tabletop water filtration um, system. And that's what we use in our water is like, you can dump raw sewage in the top of one of those things and pure water comes out the bottom. You'll have to clean it a little bit more often, but um, that's what we use in our house. But I mean, there's a lot of systems out there. But yeah, you got to get all the like, I mean, they put, why do they put chlorine in your water to kill bacteria? Well, then you got to go to the store and now you got to go buy all your probiotic yogurts and probiotic foods and pay extra for the like augmented food. And why do you need all these probiotics? Well, because you're constantly poisoning them. Yeah. Right. It's like we, we, we have these weird disconnects that like, yeah, we put chlorine in the water to kill the bacteria. So it's clean for you to eat, drink. Well, what's that doing my body? Oh, no, no, no. Don't worry about it. It's safe. Well, do I need bacteria? Oh, yeah, good bacteria. Super important. But you can buy those at the store. And it's like, well, why do I have to keep buying them? Well, because we keep poisoning them with chlorinated water. Mm, all right. Yeah. Right. Crazy. And, you know, our original water came fresh, like out of the earth where it was spun and it was energized and had the right mix of what we need and we're just so displaced from that now too but it comes right back to get a good source exactly yeah and like if you have a spring i mean like i'm in durham region there's a couple of springs that are out here that like are public use if there's one just not far from me and uh i think it's in ajax maybe it's in pickering but it's like there's a whole parking lot just for it in a spring. There's always people there filling up their like their spring water because um, it's free. It's actually municipally provided spring water that everybody just uses on the and there's like a public parking lot that's been built for it because it's that popular a site to just get clean, pure water. Yeah. And that is the best source, isn't it? And that is the best source, yeah. Yeah, let let Earth be your filter, it'll do its job. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan, how do people find you and tell us what's important to know about you? I know you're going to start a homesteading podcast, which I think is wonderful because, you know, the trials and tribulations, you'll be able to share all that because so many want to learn that. Yeah. So yeah, easiest way um, right now, bdnaturopathic.com. I've, uh, I've eschewed all things Zuckerberg. So I've, I've gotten rid of my Instagram. I mean, I'm still probably there, but it's not being updated regularly right now. Uh, I haven't gotten into the whole Telegram social media because I've been a little busy with selling and my buying a farm and selling my house. Um, so that's coming. But yeah, bdnaturopathic.com will likely be where I start with launching my website. Um, but if you like what I do and what I follow, the, the other person to follow would be my wife at Amanda Naturally. And she still is on Instagram and on Facebook and all the, and you know, all those other social media things that I, I don't do. I am like, I am the weird hermit guy that like practices out of the back of my house. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on social media and I don't do a lot of that kind of stuff. So uh, like, I'm, I'm a harder one to find. I don't, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'd rather spend my time in my garden or going for a walk 
or, you know, being out in nature than, than doing a blog post. Um, and so that's where I selfishly spend my time because I, I believe it's okay to be selfish. Right. Well, you're helping yeah. so many, but we can put the uh, link to your office or your, yeah. yeah, in the description so people can find you. That's all we need. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just, it's, I mean, it's easy. www.btbeattynaturopathic.com. Great. Thank you so much for being here today. You gave us some beautiful wisdom. Well, thank you, Jane, for having me. And thank you for doing what you do with this podcast and just helping spread the wisdom. Thank you so much. And for everyone out there, don't forget, don't give away your power to anyone else. Be the creator of your own life. Spiral up, spiral out. Mm -hmm.